We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses we are going to be talking about a bunch of different things today we're going to be talking about injured greats uh, the postponed olympics and what they may or may not look like from a u.s perspective the best trash talkers out there that we have encountered or seen. Our favorite stadiums, stadia, depending on how you grammatically you want to uh, refer to them, that either that we've been to, that we've played in, or that we want to go to, and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a Fox soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Sunday morning we are recording? I am doing well. Uh, I do have a couple of uh, television notes I want to discuss with you. Okay. As you know, I've been on more of an intellectual tip since this quarantine started, reading books, studying French, watching Ken Burns documentaries. But in the last couple of days, I decided to fire up the old Tiger King and plunge myself into that world. Now, do you feel that you were coerced or, and or shamed or... I mean, ultimately forced by the incredible inertia behind this documentary. Everybody's talking about it. Look, it's all going to be exasperated by the fact of what we're going through and we're all at home and we're desperate for things to watch. And so when something lights, lights a fire, everybody hears about it, maybe more so than in back when uh, normal times existed. But did you feel like you had to watch it? And therefore, I know, I know you, Mossy. When somebody tells you you have to do something, you push back a little bit, but you have succumbed to the pressure to watch the Tiger King. Yes. My initial instinct was to not watch it and take pride in the fact that I was the one person in America that hadn't <laughs> watched this documentary, but I did start to feel left out of conversation. So I already uh, ripped through all the episodes. Uh, and let me just say, there are no redeeming characters in the story. I mean, it is a cesspool of degenerates. And I find that Carol Baskin very problematic. Uh, it's not clear to me why she's any less exploitative of these animals than these other jokers. I know she markets herself as like an animal rescue person, but I don't know. It seems like she's running the same hustle as they are. Did you have that same feeling as well? Yes. I think that, I think that everybody did, you know, she in, and as you said, a cesspool was positioned to be the least dirty among, <laughs> among them all. And yet when you, when you look at it, relative okay i guess but then the baggage starts to come out and look if if you haven't watched this you i mean look it's not going to change your life uh other than the ability to talk when you're doing your you know your zoom drinks with uh friends and doing all that kind of stuff and it has kind of infected the consciousness out there of pop culture and stuff and stuff like that but i think mossy i think as far as a review you hit it right on the head and it is I guess it, in, in a certain way, it reaffirms your faith in humanity because if you and the people you surround yourself compare yourself to, uh, to, to these people, and, and by the way, it, it is a documentary, but it's much, it's much more of a reality TV type of peek behind a curtain. By the way, a curtain that none of us even knew existed when it comes to uh, you know the big cat world out there. All right, so you've watched Tiger King, but that only gets you so far. We all know we have to continue, uh, continue down. You gave me some homework. You gave me some homework to go and watch the Sunderland Till I Die documentary. And that's more of a, and this is where I want to make a distinction between a documentary and a reality show. And the Sunderland Till I Die, it's the second season, 
We didn't know there was going to be a second season, but there is a second season. And it is this glimpse, once again, behind the curtain of a, of a functioning professional soccer team. Dysfunctional, as most of them are, to be quite honest, if we did get a peek behind it. But this one, more so than others. So this is the second installment. Uh, my initial reaction to it, I, I enjoyed the first one. My initial reaction is that we didn't need this. This did not, this did not change the way that I looked uh, at the brand of, Sutherland, of Sunderland. And this is always the case when they have these things, you know, hard knocks or anything like that. You always, sometimes are, not always, but oftentimes you, you end up scratching your head as to why did they think that this was going to be good for the brand? And ultimately, if, if all press is good press, does it really apply in a situation like that? Uh, you might have said this on previous pods, though, but what was your reaction to uh, Sunderland Till I Die, this, uh, season two? Well, listen, it's very much a sequel. It's done in a way that presumes that you watched the first season and have all the background information on the club, the community, and who those fans are. Felt almost like bonus episodes. And seen through that lens, I thought it worked. It advanced the story. It had some good moments. It was relatively entertaining throughout, but as a standalone documentary, I did not think it was that good. Nowhere near as good as season one. And I assumed everybody would be on that page, but I, I was thrown a bit of a curveball this morning. I was emailing with our good friend Jason Wormser, the sage of South Florida, and he said he actually enjoyed season two much better. Really? Interesting. I, I did not. I found the characters, and I do call them characters because let's be honest, because this is a reality show, we know that... The edit is important. And I'm not saying that's not important in, a, in an actual documentary, but when, when you're following something in, in real time and you're dying for, I mean, this is a Kardashians type of thing where you know, things, things are set up, things aren't set up. You can make things much more important uh, and you can shade it in the way that you want it uh, and push it in whatever direction that you, that you want. I didn't find the characters, whether it was the, uh, the new ownership interesting, let alone competent, okay? I didn't find the new director, can't remember his name, Charlie something or other. I found him not to be as interesting as previous uh, characters. And once again, that whole office vibe, whether it's the British office or the American office, it was palpable. You could feel like, is this because they have watched The Office and therefore they feel they have to act like this or they have to shoot it like this. And then therefore, do they not know what The Office was and we were laughing at them rather than with them most of the time? So it was a, it was a, strange, it was a strange thing. But I, I watched it and people are going to watch it. I'm in the midst right now of binging all sorts of documentaries. I think I mentioned last week the documentary 1994, which is in Spanish. It's about the, the year in Mexico that was 19. 1994 and the and the surrounding events that happened from a political perspective. It's a little too long, but it's interesting on the same. Just finished the scheme on HBO, which is about college basketball and the money funneled into coaches and players and the repercussions of all of that. Which was eh, it was it was okay. I mean, whenever I see these things, for example, the scheme. It's, I, I'm reminded of that wonderful scene in Liar Liar, where Jim Carrey says to his client who wants advice when he's been arrested again, and the advice is stop breaking the law, ass. And you might not like the law, you might not like the restrictions out there when it comes to it, but it doesn't give you the right to go and break them and then say, yeah, but this is stupid, or the NCAA is stupid. Okay, that's fine, but that's a completely different discussion. And so anyway, I, I felt myself being frustrated by that, watching that. There's a new one coming on HBO about the uh, Atlanta child murders, which is a fascinating story. And I've watched all the movies and I've watched and I've listened to all the podcasts. And so this has new information going forward uh, if you're into, uh, in, into that thing. So there's all sorts of stuff out there to watch. Anything that new that you are watching, Mossy, or anything that's caught your eye out there? Well, I was going to mention the uh, Atlanta child murders because you and I both listened to that podcast that was done about it recently. It was also featured in the second season of the Netflix show Mindhunter, yep. which I highly recommend, a very Great. good show. So I'm looking forward to that, the story of Wayne Williams, who was arrested for all those murders. But to this day, there's still some questions about whether he did any of them, much less all of them. So it's now going to get the HBO treatment. So yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that as well. All right. Well, enough of what we're watching, but do hit us up. And uh, we know that we're all watching a lot because, uh, as we know, this, uh, this new normal here 
continues. Is it frustrating? Yeah. Does it suck? Yes. But hopefully uh, everybody out there is doing the things to protect themselves and to protect others in order to get back to some semblance of the life that we know uh, existed, I mean, geez, a month ago, uh, for uh, for example. And Masi, I did a, uh, speaking of Zoom, I, I did a Zoom call with an under 13 Development Academy team out of the Atlanta area. And it was, it was really interesting to see these 13-year-old kids. And uh, you know what? I'll save, the, I'll save it for later. I'll talk about that a little later on in the, uh, in the pod. But this Zoom thing is now our new normal, and it's the way that we communicate. And thank God it exists. I mean, if this was 20 years ago or 30 years ago, we would all be in the dark when it comes to the ability to communicate. So I know it's not perfect. And as I said, I know it sucks. But I'll tell you what, you know who it really sucks for and you know who you know, are doing things uh, to help us is those in the medical community. So if this is what we have to go through, and if this is your problem is that you're bored, or there's not enough to watch, uh, or you miss, uh, you know, the human contact, I get it. But you know, this is uh, this is what we have to go through. All right, Mossy, enough of that about that. Should we uh, talk a little soccer? Should we light this candle? Yeah. Okay, as you know, uh, we start off our pod normally with my State of the Union. We have not completely disbanded that, but for now, as we are doing these remote pods, we want to get right into the conversation. Uh, You don't need me on my soapbox uh, right now from a uh, State of the Union pod. That will come back uh, in due time, but right now we're going to get into it. And what we thought we'd talk about for our first segment here is you know, not the concept, the reality of injuries. We all know that in professional sports, injuries happen. They come with the territory. I have often said, and I guess I'll start the the discussion off here because it, it bears repeating. And at times I've been criticized for this, that staying healthy is a skill. Now, it's something that Part of it is something you develop over time and understanding how your body functions, understanding what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate for you to, uh, for, for you to do in order to sustain your health, your physical health. Some of it is beyond your control in that things happen that you couldn't have anticipated and you deal with it. We thought we'd take a look back at some players and the spectrum is, is pretty large here, but players who were impacted and affected by injury. And in doing so, the way that we view them has changed. And that's, that's fair uh, to, to view that. And it all stems from a, uh, a, uh, a quote here um, that Diego Maradona, very quotable person, gave uh, regarding the great uh, Ronaldo, not Cristiano Ronaldo, the great uh, Brazilian uh, striker, relative to who he was, the injuries, and what Maradona feels he could have been. So, Mossy, can you give us a little more context before we go on? Yeah, I mean, the genesis of all this is that uh, last week uh, we talked about which players have impacted us most throughout our lives, and I mentioned that my favorite player of all time was the Brazilian Ronaldo, and I said that um, I thought without injuries he could have been the greatest player of all time. And so this Maradona quote did pop up on Twitter this past week. I'm not sure exactly when Maradona said this, but in speaking about the Brazilian Ronaldo, Maradona said, Ronaldo is the greatest striker of all time. Without injuries, he would have been the best player of all time. I have absolutely no doubt about this. He would have made the world forget about me and Pele. And so that got Alex Dowd thinking, which is uh, usually dangerous, but in this case, it it spawned a pretty good idea. Who are some of the other injury-related what-ifs in soccer history, players whose careers were shortchanged by injuries that we look back on and, and with disappointment because we thought, you know, without injuries, they really could have achieved some special things. It could be American or otherwise. And I have some guys I want to mention, but I'll let you go first. Who are some guys? Well, I, that just you look- wanna, I just want to make sure that I understand what we're talking about here, because I, I agreed to have this, but I do have some reticence in terms of discussing this because we can do this all day. I could have been better because I was faster. Uh, this person could have been better and one of the greatest of all time had he or she scored that goal. If Chris Wondolowski had scored that goal in the world, you know, we can we can do this what if type of uh, type of situation. But when it comes when it comes to injury, the the whole premise of it, I disagree with because yes, you can look at a trajectory, and what we're doing is we're extrapolating it out. And we're bypassing the fact that he or she got injured here. And the other thing is, some of the people that we are going to talk about here, 
are already stars, all right? They're already incredible. In, I mean, when you talk about Ronaldo, there's people out there that would still put him as one of the greats ever to play the game. And so there's a difference between that and someone who was rising and was literally cut down at times in a moment. And then you're saying that trajectory that they had on the other side. But what you're what you're discounting or failing to realize is all the other challenges and all the other things that happen, whether it's a coaching change, a club change, uh, things off the field, a divorce, uh, kids, all the other things that come, that, that come into play. And look, it's a, it's a fun game and we're going to do this. And people that are in our business, Mossy, as you know right now, we are searching for content uh, and we are mining things that haven't been mined before or we are continuing to go deeper on things that have been mined before. So I, that's just my, it's not a caveat. It's just when I think about these things and that's why I say that staying healthy is a skill. And some people take me to task for, for, for saying that. But if you are assessing a player, why would you care about the injury history? Well, you care about it because it matters. And it is part of skill. Now, look, there's some things I can't, I can't be any faster. Physically, I, I am what I am, okay? I can get a better touch. I can work on, um, on improving, uh, improving my touch. Can you become better at not getting hurt or not getting injured? I argue that yes, you can. And that, that sometimes comes with time. And then therefore, there should be a value and an added value placed on players that were able to stay healthy, that were able to do it. And I know that you know, my, my good friend Stuart Holden or somebody else may argue, you know, it, it's not anything that I did. It was just the soccer god smiling or, in this case, frowning upon me at a different moment. So that's, that's my initial take when we start talking about these things. I guess... I guess, reaction to that, and then in, as it pertains specifically to, to Ronaldo, do you think that Maradona, I guess, is right? I do, and I, I think you're absolutely right. We have to distinguish between players where we're, we're speculating and in some cases maybe mythologizing how good they were, how good they would have been, versus guys where there's empirical evidence. In Ronaldo's case, I'm not projecting any improvement. I just wish that 96 to 98 Ronaldo had lasted for like 10 years, and I think that would have been enough for him to – be in the conversation for greatest player of all time. So I think you do have to separate cases like that where you're right. We're, we're not like speculating where we saw how good he was when he was healthy. And it's just a shame that uh, he wasn't able to, to maintain that level for longer. So yeah, I mean, those are the cases that really frustrate people. But I mean, do you, do you want to go through a list? Yeah, let's go, let's go through, let's go through a couple here. Let's go through a couple here uh, that stand out when people start talking about it. I don't know if Ronaldo would have been uh, the yes the injuries uh, played a part but the the sheer joy and creativity that made him the phenomenon I tend to think that that's finite uh, that that only lasts so long and both players teams the sport adapts and evolves to to deal with that for example I think that for all Messi's creativity, I think there's an efficiency behind him that's different than, uh, than a Ronaldo. So I, I, I don't know. I think he would have continued to give us these magic moments. But in the same way that we talked about Guatemoc Blanco, I think that you know, the peaks and the valleys would have continued on even if, he had stayed, uh, even if he had stayed healthy. And look, every player deals with different injuries going forward. But you know, then you get into the you know, the, the Michael Owens. And once again, a, a, still a huge star and someone that people recognize. And a lot of it is based on what he did in that World Cup. And then it's what could have been from a, you know, from a club perspective and a continued uh, national team perspective. And he was felled by, uh, by injuries. Ledley King, not necessarily the big star that, that people talk about. Marco Van Basten. Anytime anybody has a conversation about Marco Van Basten, it's first how incredible he was, and second, how incredible he could have been. But he's still always on the, on the uh, tips of uh, people's tongues when they are talking about some of the great players over there. And then two American players, uh, and I'll throw it back to you here, Mossy, John O'Brien uh, and Stu Holden. And I'll have comments on that in a, in a second, but uh, I'm going to throw it to you here uh, for a couple of players, either that we've listed or people that come to mind when you think about great players that, uh, that were felled by injury. Well, I'm going to do the American front first. I absolutely co-signed John O'Brien. Uh, we talked about the 2002 
team last week. Uh, I was so impressed with him in that World Cup. Thought he was an incredibly gifted midfielder. It's such a shame that injuries shortchanged his career the way they did. Stu Holden, our colleague you mentioned. Charlie Davies would be one I would yep. bring up. And then I want to mention uh, somebody who's an American but didn't play for the U.S. national team in Giuseppe Rossi, who's actually a member mm-hmm. of Real Salt Lake now. I'm a massive fan of Giuseppe Rossi. I feel like there's a parallel universe in which Rossi plays for the United States and doesn't have the injuries he had, and he could have been Christian Pulisic before Christian Pulisic. He could have been the guy that was playing for the biggest clubs in the world, commanding massive fees, and this transformative American player. Everything we're sort of putting on Pulisic's shoulders now. It could have been Giuseppe Rossi, and it's such a shame that things worked out the way they did, but I, I was a massive fan of him. I thought he was a major talent. Those are some, those are some good calls. And, you know, when, when I talk about staying healthy being a skill. Uh, At times, I I think about how I would feel if I was Stuart Holden and somebody said that and the, you know, the the wincing and the pain that it might make me uh, that it make me feel like it doesn't change the fact that 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 I say and Stuart and I have have had uh, had conversations about it. And look, the not just the physical pain that someone like him went through, but you know, the emotional and mental pain because you know you can do it because you've seen yourself do it and that it's taken away and it's either you can't do it or it's you can do it to a lesser extent and there's nothing you can do. And then when you finally feel your back, a lot of times for the number of the players that we mentioned, boom, they get, uh, they get hit again. And oftentimes they never recover even close to where they, where they were. And that'll, that'll play on your mind because everybody will talk about it. And you will be thinking about it constantly. You know, John, John O'Brien, one of the great players. And so why do we say he's one of the great players? Well, number one, he did it at a high level and we saw it in a, in a very short period, but we saw it. So we saw that he could do that. But his body, he couldn't sustain that from a physical perspective, which goes back to what we talked about earlier when you're talking about Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo who are going to go down as one and people, some people will argue on one side or the other, the greatest players ever to play the game. And yet we don't think about their careers and you know, they've, they've spent some time where they've had injuries, but nothing, nothing serious and nothing that has been definitive, nothing that has been part of that whole story that we tell, which in a certain way, makes it that much more impressive that they have done it for such a long period of time at such a high level. And they both, in, in different ways though, they both understand their body. And no one would ever compare <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo from a physical and physique perspective to Messi. And yet they share an understanding of how to take care of themselves, what they can do, and maybe even what they can't do. Because what they can do, only a few people in, in the history of, the, of humans have been able to do, but also what they can't do. And they, they will live to fight another day with the recognition that there will be another day if they make an appropriate choice in sometimes in split second type of, uh, type of timing there. I did go back, Mossy, and think about players that weren't soccer players, people like, you know, this, uh, you know the, uh, the Penny Hardaway guy, you know him, remember him? Sure. And uh, Grant Hill, remember him? Absolutely. And then and this is one that, that shows up kind of like a Marco Van Boston type of thing, a, uh, a Bo Jackson. I mean, a legend, but it's also there's that, oh, God, but what could have been? And then uh, of, of recent, uh, that basketball player, Yao Ming, remember him? So you know, all of these people uh, and all of these athletes were of undeniable talent. And sometimes talent that we had never seen before and yet they were these these shooting stars these comets that that came and went very very quickly and you know we like you said i think earlier we romanticize it and that's that's natural because every we always say what could have been in life and in general we say what could have been and that we didn't get a full what we consider a full career of it to be able to assess makes us sad and makes us pine for that future that was taken away. Yeah, I mean, a few more things here. On the cross-sports comparison front, uh, I've always equated Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, to Mickey Mantle, who, if you know your baseball history, is somebody who had a great career, 
536 home runs, three-time MVP, triple crown winner. But there is this air of what could have been because he also had terrible injuries throughout his career. And lots of people think he could have been the greatest baseball player of all time without those injuries. Two soccer players I want to bring up. One old school Brazilian, just to make my father happy, is Tostão, who was one of the stars of Brazil's 1970 World Cup winning side, but retired soon after at the age of 26 because of an eye injury. And my father and everybody I've ever spoken to from my father's generation swears that he was like a Pele Maradona level player who was already starting to outshine Pele in the late 60s and uh, post-1970 would have taken the baton from Pele and been Brazil's big star in the early to mid-70s and would probably be looked upon today as one of the handful greatest players who ever lived. So that's one. And then I did want to ask you, when you were in Serie A in the mid-90s, do you remember facing a player by the name of Gianluigi Lentini? Sure. I mean, he, he, I mean, is a and this is where it gets into is, is a car accident an injury is it, obviously you get injured, but is you consider that an injury is a disease or something like that that has nothing to do necessarily with the playing of the game. Do you consider that it because Lentini famously incredible transfer fee, one of the highest uh, ever paid. And then uh, go ahead, Mossy. I didn't mean to. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned Charlie Davis before, so I guess I'm including uh, car accidents in that. Uh, And Lantini, for people who don't know the story, Italian player who rose to prominence with Torino uh, in the early 90s, was sort of the golden boy of Italian football. And in the summer of 1992, moved to AC Milan for a world record fee, had a fairly good first season, helped them win Serie A and get to the Champions League final, which they lost to Marseille. And all signs pointed to him being... Uh, one of Milan's big stars for several years and also a key figure in that Italian 1994 uh, World Cup squad in the United States. But it was not to be in August of 93. He was involved in a horrific car accident, almost died, uh, managed to come back and play, but was never the same. Uh, played for many years, but just had kind of a journeyman career after that. And so he's a guy that you talk to Serie A lovers from the early to mid-90s, and, and you mentioned Lentini, and, and, and they feel sadness. And he's a guy that, you know, gets that whole what could have been kind of treatment. So... Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to throw that name at you. I wanted to see if, if you had any recollection of facing him. Mossy, some current players out there uh, or recently retired players, guys like Marco Roish, Christian Pulisic, we should talk about him, uh, Daniel Sturridge, Falcao, Vincent Company. You know, the, I mean, I guess, I guess Vincent Company of, of them, I associate injury with him less. I mean, look, I know it's, he always, he was always having those, those problems, but you know, of these, of these types of players, who do you think has been, or who do you think ultimately will be uh, most hurt, I guess, from that injury bug when you look at a list like that? Well, look, he still had a very good career, but Marco Royce is a guy who I really bemoan uh, the injury problems he's had. We cover him in the Bundesliga with Dortmund and such a great player and, and missed out on, on winning the 2014 world cup. And, and, who knows if he had stayed healthy during these seasons, Dortmund maybe could have challenged Bayern better than they have and, and perhaps won a Bundesliga a title or two along the way. So yeah, that, uh, of the names you just read out, uh, that's one that jumps out. And then speaking of staying with the Dortmund theme, you mentioned Christian Pulisic. Boy, it's early in his career. Are you already putting him in that category? Are you fearing that he's a guy that might have this sort of star cross injury laden career? Yeah, because I can only, I can only base it on what I've seen so far. And the, the kid, I mean, he's not a kid anymore, but, the young man can't get healthy. And that's, you know, that's a problem going forward. You know, I get, I get the question all the time, who's better, Landon Donovan or Christian Pulisic? It's not even a question. Why are we even asking this question? Okay. And I know Christian Pulisic did well at Borussia Dortmund and had a huge transfer fee and went to, and, and went to Chelsea, but Christian Pulisic hasn't even played in a world cup yet. Okay. Christian Pulisic hasn't done anything relative to what Landon Donovan did. Okay. And Christian Pulisic, has shown that injury could be a problem. And once again, you ask coaches what they want. They, they don't want this. They want this. And part of this is being able to be counted on game in and game out. And as I said before, it is a skill. I hope that this break uh, enables Christian uh, uh, Pulisic from a physical perspective to heal and that he comes back. And it's not a situation, as we see oftentimes, where it's one thing after another, or it's compensating from a physical perspective for one thing that then affects an, uh, that then affects another thing. But the injury part of Christian Pulisic is a completely valid and fair part of the assessment and the criticism. Okay, going forward, when you are assessing somebody like Chris, uh, Christian Pulisic, and not just for those of us in the media that we talk about, 
But if I'm working for a club and I'm looking to bring in Christian Pulisic, what am I going to look at? Wow, he was injured here. He was injured here. He missed this. He missed this. This is a problem. Is it something that is being done or not done relative to the clubs that he's been to? Is it just something that we have to look at? That physical when you have it, what are we going to look at? You know, all of those different things, that is, I think, a completely fair part of the assessment of Christian Pulisic or any player out there. All right. Should we transition to uh, Ask Alexi? Yeah, we should. You know, we're going to take a little break here. And when we come back, we are going to have, as you said, some questions uh, with regards to Ask Alexi. People are still throwing stuff out there. I get them all day. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi when you're doing that. But, you know, this thus endeth the uh, conversation with regards to injuries uh, and players. And look, I hope that all players out there play long careers without injuries. We all know it's part, it's, it's, uh, it's part of the game. But it is interesting to see how injuries affect not just the players, but affect how we view those players. And uh, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that are listening that uh, have players that are coming to mind. Uh, I will leave you with this. For example, people ask me, what's the player that we've never heard of in the U.S. that should have been bigger? guy like Steve Snow, I played with him on the Olympic team way back in the day. He never ended up uh, doing anything because of a number of injuries that he had. And for me, that's a player, a goal scorer, a guy up top that could have been great and he could not keep himself healthy. But that's one where people don't know him. And every, every sport has those where you saw a guy play at a young age or you saw a guy play on the, on the playground or whatever it ended up being and it, it just didn't happen. And by the way, it, it may not happen for a number of different reasons. What, like I said before, injuries are different paths that you take, but every sport has them out there. Injuries are going to continue to be a part of every sport and part of every player. And the ability to deal with them, as I said before, is part of your skills as an athlete. All right, we'll be back in a second. Ask Alexi. All right, we are back with uh, Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there, or you can ask Mossy. You can ask uh, both of us, but out there on the uh, old social media platforms out there, you throw us out some questions, comments, concerns, and we got, our, we got Alex out there mining everything that's going on. So uh, uh, whether it's directly or indirectly out there, if you want to know something from us, let us know. And we take uh, a few of them each and every week, as we're about to do, and uh, hopefully we have some uh, answers out there. Mossy. What do the people want to know this week? First up, Alex Goldstein, 87. Bigger upset in the 90s, USMNT beating Argentina in 95 or beating Brazil in 98? Interesting. Um, well, may not be interesting to everybody, but it's interesting to me. Uh, and we thought it was interesting enough to talk about it for a number of reasons, not the least of which is I actually played in both of those games. I was fortunate enough to be on the field uh, for both of those games. Ended up being 3 nothing uh, against Argentina down in uh, Paysandú, Uruguay, during the 1995 Copa America. And uh, it was a, a wonderful night and a wonderful result, historic result. And then a few years later, with the U.S. here, actually, in Los Angeles at the Coliseum during the Gold Cup, we ended up beating Brazil uh, 1-0 uh, on a goal from the great Precky and great Precky's left foot on a day that it has to be said, uh, Casey Keller had one of the most phenomenal performances ever against your uh, Brazilians there. If I had to pick one, though, I still think that it's 1995 uh, for a couple of reasons. One, while I love the Gold Cup and while I love and will champion CONCACAF, the Gold Cup relative to Copa America, not all things are created equal. Uh, the Copa America is much bigger. It presents much more of a challenge. and the United States was playing away. Now, we weren't playing in Argentina, but we were playing right across the border there. I've told you about this game, and we've talked about Maradona once again uh, being at that game and how important it was. Uh, goals from Frank Lopez, Eric Winalda, and yours truly. And it's what Argentina represented at that moment. And look, I'm not saying, Masi, that Brazil isn't a, a huge deal, and that wasn't a big thing. But my, my argument boils down to the fact that 
Copa America, and I've talked about this before, where I, I, I lament the fact that U.S. teams have had to turn down invitations to Copa America because I just think it's a wonderful tournament. I think it gives you and prepares you and challenges you in ways that can ultimately benefit you, especially when it comes to a World Cup. And it's very, very different type of play and environment and experience than I would think a Euros or something like uh, that. I just, I, I love that tournament. And it was a pleasure to be there. That was our second one because we had appeared in 1993. That was our second one with that group of players that played in, the, in that game. So if I had to pick one, that. Now, look, beating Brazil is, is a special moment for what Brazil means to the world, uh, the world of soccer. We had no business beating Brazil on that night. If not for Casey Keller... <laughs> <laughs> it would have been four or five, nothing. Romario was missing goals on the doorstep. You know, I, I was basically turning around every five uh, to 10 minutes and saying, hey, Case, you're doing a great job. Well done. Thanks. Uh, thanks for saving my ass and everybody else's ass on a continual basis. So I, I look at the two games differently. We beat Argentina. At, we played them off the park. It was, it was not even a, uh, a question. They had no idea. No, I'm not saying that Casey didn't have to make saves uh, in that game but it wasn't the onslaught that the uh, Brazil game was. Masi, comments? Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, the Argentina one felt bigger because of the competition and, and, and the performance. I mean, that was an emphatic victory versus, as you mentioned, the Brazil one. There was, you know, an element of luck to it in the sense of a goalkeeper sort of standing on his head. Uh, next question. At Sugar Tax Max, who would you select for the above 23 age players for the U.S. men's national team for whenever the Olympics are? A couple of things here. Uh, we know when the Olympics are going to be. They're going to be in the uh, summer of 2021. And he says above 23. FIFA have come out and, and we uh, speculated they might do this. They've changed it to uh, it's now an under 24 tournament, essentially. So if you were born January 1st, 1997 or beyond, you're eligible. They didn't want to deprive players who would have been eligible this summer, but wouldn't be next summer if it stayed under 23. So I think this is the right thing to do. So it opens up the talent pool even more. Now, the move, as we discussed last week, the move to the summer of 21 does put it in the same summer as a gold cup. So the U.S. is going to have to figure that out. And you, you're on record as saying that the Gold Cup should be the priority. So as to this question about overage players for the Olympics, you're trying to thread this tough needle here because you're trying to find players that for whatever reason may not fit in Greg Berhalter's uh, Gold Cup squad but you, that you think could be of some value uh, in adding experience to the Olympic team. So, so how would you interpret this question? Yeah, so just to clarify, last week when we were talking about the Gold Cup versus the Olympics, look, we know that six of the 10 games, but wait, we don't know, but the way that it is scheduled right now, six of the 10 games in the hex from the US, national, US men's national team in order to qualify for 2022 were scheduled and still are scheduled right now to have been played by the end of this year. And then the rest of the games in, in 2022. We all know that everything's up in the air. If the U.S. has played those games and has continued to play a couple more and they're well on their way to qualifying for the World Cup by the time next summer rolls around, my thoughts might change. But let's just say that it all happens uh, uh, like it does. And by the way, uh, well done to FIFA and the IOC for maintaining this and not punishing any players uh, for the fact that it was that it didn't happen this summer, it makes makes complete sense, which is why some thought that that might happen. But in this case, uh, the powers that be recognize that common sense dictates that you uh, th that you do that. The problem from a U.S. perspective isn't actually even the competition between Gold Cup and the Olympics. For me, when I look at it, is who out there is somebody that you have to have on your team. Keep in mind that Christian Pulisic, while eligible, Tyler Adams, while eligible, they haven't been involved. So theoretically, you could still, if you qualified for the Olympics and they didn't, they weren't involved in qualifying, they could still be on that team. So are we counting them, Mossy, as, even though they wouldn't count as overage players, we're not counting them as, as overage players either, right? So if I say that you, you know, you have have those two those don't count you want you want legit over 24 players from the national team pool right now that would make you better and that's where I turn to you and I say I mean who who is there Josie Altador 
Michael Bradley, you know, there's, there's just, there's not a lot. There's nobody that I say, oh yeah, definitely. When, okay, so the traditional way that, that, uh, that it's done is you get people down the spine, right? You get a goalkeeper, you get a center back, you get a center midfield, and you get a, a, a striker. And of those four, you pick, you pick three that are going to change it. So right now, you know, who, who are we looking at as a must-have type of center back when it comes to the United States national team to play on the Olympic team? Walker Zimmerman, right? John Brooks, maybe. I get maybe a John Brooks or something like that. You know, Des Des qualifies anyway to play on the team, so that that doesn't matter. Goalkeeper, uh, you know, is it? I mean, I, I guess you could make a Brad Guzdan type of call right there. Maybe in a strange way, you could say, "All right, Brad, since we're going to go with Zach Steffen as our as our number one, you go take the Olympics." And you, you split it like that. But neither of them, you know, I, I think they're good goalkeepers. Neither of them right now are great goalkeepers that fundamentally change that team. So that's why, that's why I'm struggling. But if I had to do it, all right, Brad Guzdan and goal. Oh, jeez. Slim Pickens, my friend. Slim Pickens. All right, you know, I, I will do it. I will go with a John Brooks as a center back. Nope, you know, I'm not going to do it. If you're going to – I really wish Darlington <laughs> was around, but he's not. So, yeah, you need somebody up top. So then Josie. Right, so Josie, Brooks, and Brad Guzan. What about you, Mossy? Anybody that just jumps out that you would definitely have? Well, first off, the U.S. hasn't qualified yet for this tournament. We're right. presuming they qualify. And perhaps in watching qualifying – uh, some clear weaknesses would emerge in terms of position where we'd look at and say, okay, that's a position that really needs to be strengthened. It's hard to say with qualifying having not taken place yet, but the goalkeeper thing you said made, made a lot of sense to me because I've been thinking about the same thing with Brazil, having the Copa America and the Olympics uh, in the same summer. Why not send Allison to one, Ederson to the other? So I could see a scenario like that with Stefan and Guzan. And yeah, John Brooks is a player I thought about too that maybe for whatever reason might fall down the pecking order with Greg Berhalter and might not be a a player that you would bring into the Gold Cup, but would still add some value in the center of defense for the Olympic team. And yeah, if there was somebody like uh, Michael Bradley, who you chose to move on from with the senior team, but you still thought was a guy that could bring loads of experience to, the, to an Olympic team, I, I think that would make a lot of sense. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a good call right there. I might, yeah, I, I, think that, I think that Josie has a better chance of being heavily involved with the full national team than Michael Bradley has with being involved with the full national team. And so that's maybe where you split them. So that's a, that's a good point there. All right. Good question. Good question. And look, uh, the, the, let's hope we have that problem. Let's hope we are, we are figuring, uh, figuring it out. Uh, let's hope we qualify for the first time after having bombed out over the last couple of uh, cycles, because as I said, each and every pod, it is important and it can be incredibly useful to the players that have the, uh, the privilege and opportunity to represent the United States at an Olympics from a men's perspective. Women, we already know uh, they're going and that's not a problem and they're always going to vie for that, that gold medal. But we've lost out on that opportunity for too many generations now and too many age groups that, uh, that didn't get that opportunity to go through an Olympics. So hopefully that is something that happens. All right, what else? Well, what's next, Mossy? And then last question is a fun one. R. Writer 01, I think it's pronounced. Okay. Who was the best trash talker you played against or with? Hmm. Interesting. So I think I, I've told you before that the amount of talking that happens in soccer is not – is. I would think much less than other sports because soccer is so spread out in terms of the spacing that it's not conducive to kind of being up close and personal. I mean, look, you're, you're next to players at different times, but the, there's no, the stoppages and the time to be able to make your point are, are fewer and far between. Having said that, someone like Clay Coyman, who, uh, by the way, on an, on an aside, Clay's uh, gone through the last couple of years, you know, fighting, uh, um, from a medical standpoint, and I, I heard that he's that he that he's better. I hope that that is uh, that is true. Clay Coyman, I played with him on the 1994 World Cup team. A uh, a center back, a teddy bear, one of the nicest men you will ever ever encounter. Just so genuine and wants to help and wants to just be friendly. 
until he gets on the soccer field. And then I don't know what's happened. I, I don't understand it, but something there is a switch and he becomes a completely different person in the things that he does playing wise and physically uh, to intimidate and to annihilate and crush <laughs> and the things that he says. I mean, whether it's punching or kicking or spitting or calling you names in multiple languages, it was the first time I ever played with him, it was very, very strange. And I was playing with him at times uh, and he would be doing it to the opposition or then we, if we were scrimmaging, he would be doing it. And he didn't differentiate between a game or a training session. It was just Clay Coyman and that's what he wanted to do. So he was wonderful. I, the other one that I think comes to mind is a guy named Ivan McKinley who uh, played for Tampa Bay. And, you know, the, these guys, they wanted to get into your head and into your body. And they would go through you with reckless abandon and then start screaming and yelling at you and constantly talking to you to get you, uh, get you off your game. So those are, those are a couple of them. But as I said before, you know, you, there's only so much that F you gets, right? You can scream and yell at somebody and call them names and, and cuss them out and all that kind of stuff. But it, it a lot of that goes in, in one ear and out the other. It's the ones with wit. It's the ones that are clever. It's the ones that use the opportunity to really put the dagger in, in an emotional way that in a strange way you have a respect for. And you turn and say, well done. That was well done. As much as it may hurt, it was well done. And those are few and far between. So... I don't know, Mossy, are there any, any legendary trash talkers out? Jordan evidently was a legendary trash talker in the NBA, right? Correct. And Larry Bird as well. Really? Yep. Larry Bird? Wow. I mean, it's, it, I always said, I got so much to do right now. I can't be thinking about these things on how to trash talk. I had enough problems just trying to get through the game and deal with everything uh, that was in front of me, let alone trying to come up with interesting and unique and clever ways to throw somebody off their, their game from a, uh, a trash-talking perspective. And once again, the, the, the sport just doesn't lend itself in the way that a basketball does or, or an American football because of the stoppages and the, uh, the spacing involved. All right, thanks, uh, Writer01. Uh, anything else, Mossy, when it comes to Ask Alexi? No, that's it. All right, well, use that hashtag out there and continue to uh, send us your questions. Uh, all we got is time right now, so uh, we got plenty of opportunity, whether it's in the pod or uh, on Twitter or uh, Instagram or anything else uh, out there. Send us those questions, those Ask Alexi questions, and we will try to get to as many of them. We get to a lot of them, and then we pick a few uh, for the pod each week. So just because we didn't or don't read uh, your question on, uh, on the pod doesn't mean that we're not answering them. You can find me all the time on all the uh, social media platforms out there. And you can scream and yell at me if you'd like. And oftentimes I will scream and yell at you uh, back. All right, moving on. Okay, it's time for our uh, social roundabout here. We're going to look at some things uh, that in, in, the, in the greater scheme of things that we may have discussed uh, before. But in this case, it's something that we were going to talk about last week, right, Mossy? But we shelved it for this week to give it its due because I do think that in, in when we talk about our sport, one of the thing, the great things about soccer is these homes, these cathedrals, these gathering places of worship to a certain extent that are the stadiums. And they all have their own unique characteristics and personality. They take, they be, they, they take on mythic type of proportions sometimes when it comes to what happens on and off the field. They are bucket list type of things. And so we thought we'd give a little time and talk about stadiums, stadia, whichever one, like I said, you want to use out there. Did I, did I frame that correctly in terms of what we're going to talk about here, Mossy? Correct. And I think from your perspective, it'll be favorite stadiums you've ever played in. And, and then from my perspective, favorite stadiums I've ever been in as a fan. So I'll let you go first. Okay. So I'm going to go through a couple of uh, different ones. I will always have an affinity uh, and an association and connection with the Great Rose Bowl 
Okay, and the Rose Bowl has a long and storied history when it comes to American soccer, whether it's even games before the 1994 World Cup, but then the Men's uh, World Cup in 1994, and then a few years later with the 1999 World Cup, Brandy Chastain, that whole moment happening in the Rose Bowl. It is, even before we kicked a soccer ball there, it was iconic uh, for, back then it, it held 100,000 people nestled in the in the uh, the foothills there uh, over in Pasadena and from a American sports perspective it has always been something that uh, has been revered and so for an opportunity for for me to play there and then obviously to play in a World Cup there and to have that incredible game against uh, Colombia one of the defining games and moments uh, of American soccer up till then and certainly a moment that changed my career I will always have a, a soft spot and a place in my heart for the great Rose Bowl. There's nothing like walking out on the Rose Bowl field in front of 100,000 people and just feeling the history. Incidentally, I remember walking out on the, to the Rose Bowl field in the World Cup and Eric Winalda tripped over the sideline, all right? And you think, well, how is that possible? And I, in that moment, I remember thinking, this is so surreal. I'm looking at my friend walking out onto the field and he walked over the sideline and he tripped. What he tripped on was nothing, was air. The sideline freaked him out or whatever, and he couldn't get his feet right. And we laughed about it. We had a little moment there. And, and sometimes when you're in big moments, you need a grounding type of effect. And for me, it was that, watching him trip over the sideline as he walked onto the field. Number two, and this is not necessarily in order, but these are some of the ones that have stood out to me. San Siro. In, uh, in Milan. I uh, had the opportunity to play there against the great Milan teams and Inter Milan teams there. It is a cathedral. It is, has plenty of history when it comes to Italian soccer and European soccer and, and all of that. And it was, you know, for me, it represented a, another step because for so long I had watched this and I had, I had watched it from a soccer perspective. I, did, I didn't grow up with it. And yet, I remember Bora Milutinovic taking us to the bars leading up to the World Cup and making us watch Italian soccer and making us watch games from San Siro and it being this, this place out there. And to actually walk on the field was an incredible uh, uh, amount of pride. Uh, two more. First would be uh, Azteca Stadium. In, and we've talked about that, the the Thunderdome type of environment that it is, the Vuvuzelas before Vuvuzelas were there, that buzzing, that humming, that hive, that lack of being able to see the, uh, the sky, um, obviously the heat, the smog, all of that different stuff just combined it to make it one of, the most, one of the most intimidating places out there. And then finally, I had the, uh, the privilege of playing in Old Wembley. And even for someone who didn't grow up with English football, I, I understood what Wembley was. And I understood it actually much more from a, a musical sense than a, uh, a soccer sense. However, being able to go out on the field at Old Wembley, and yes, we lost 2 nothing to England, and yes, I got booed every single time I touched the ball, and yes, Alan Shearer skinned me for both of the goals. It was wonderful. I, I, I just, I, I let the boos each and time I touched the ball just, just, cascade over me and the fact that I was playing in Wembley it didn't matter actually I enjoyed the fact that I was being uh, booed at Wembley because it put me in an in a, in a completely different echelon so there's a couple of things that I have played in and that have made an impression I have not been to Old Trafford so I that's someplace that I'd like to go uh, I've not uh, been there so that's someplace that is kind of on a bucket list if we're putting those things out yeah, from my perspective, uh, I saw my first games as a kid at the Maracana, so I will always have a special place in my heart for that stadium. In terms of uh, Europe, I've been to the Olympico, I've been to the San Siro, I've been to the Parc de Prince, I've been to Camp Nou, the Bernabeu, Anfield, Goodison Park, the Etihad, the Emirates. If I had to pick out two that gave me the most chills, it would be the Bernabeu. I went to a Champions League game there in the mid-2000s, saw the Galacticos, Zidane, Beckham, playing against Lyon. And then Anfield, which I went to a couple of years ago with Keith Costigan, saw a Liverpool Champions League game against Napoli. Those were amazing experiences. And then uh, in terms of like a bucket list one I haven't been to, it would be La Bombonera for a Boca River game. Uh, my parents went and they said it was like the craziest experience of their life. And so 
uh, I, it's something that I would like to experience at some point. But do you think you'll experience it? Yeah, uh, I don't see why not. All right. My question to you is this. Uh, you mentioned a couple ones there. And so is, do you, do you have been to Old Trafford? I have not. So I, I concur with you. That, okay. That's high up there on my bucket list as well. Interesting. Interesting. It, it, it is. And I, I said Old Trafford over Anfield. You think I'm mistaken? Since we both haven't been there, we have nothing to compare it to. But I'm sure all the Liverpool people out there will say it's not even a question. Oh, they'll, they'll scream and yell. But I'm interested to people out there. This is my question to you. What is a better experience for a neutral? For a neutral. If you had to, if you had to pick one place to send your friend, okay, who didn't have any type of association with either of these teams, would you rather send them to a game at Old Trafford? or Anfield. And let us let us know. And look, tell me because I'm that person, okay? If you need if you want to send me to a game, would you rather send me to Old Trafford or Anfield? What's a better experience? What am I going to come away with? What's going to be a more powerful type of experience and impact on me? So, you guys fight it out and you figure out what the the, the best place uh, best place is. Anything else out there, Mossy? Uh, no, that's it. All right, so uh, we come to the end of yet another pod. We appreciate uh, and thank you for listening and tuning in. And we know we're going through some very, very interesting times. Uh, I tell my kids that they will have an incredible story to tell their children when, uh, when their children are complaining about uh, things. But uncharted territory we are in. Uh, we end each pod with uh, one for the road. I, I briefly touched on it earlier, uh, this, this Zoom phenomenon that is keeping us connected and to a certain extent keeping us sane. I had the, uh, the incredible privilege of being invited on and talking to an under 13-year-old development academy team out of Atlanta. And it was, uh, it was fun. It was a good time. But it was interesting to me to see as these young soccer players out there are going through something that I never went through, uh, are going through a moment in their, in their soccer development that is not only unique, but incredibly challenging. And their ability to connect, not just as, uh, you know, as soccer players, but as a team was great. It was wonderful to see. And I know that other teams and other people are doing that and that they invited me in just to kind of talk about some different things and to, you know, explain uh, where, you know, my, my path and all that kind of stuff, even though they're in a very, very different world, a soccer world. It was fun. Uh, it was fun to talk to them and it was fun to uh, talk about what they are doing because they're trying to figure it out as I'm sure a lot of soccer players out there are trying to, and not everybody has space. Uh, not everybody has the facilities and the resources to be able to do the things that they need to do, which is why soccer may be uniquely out of all sports is something that you can do. Obviously, we talk about the simplicity and all you need, need is a ball and your touch, your first touch in particular can be worked on. And I know that there are soccer players at all levels, whether it's professional or if you're just starting out, that are finding ways and being creative to find ways to stay literally in touch with the game. And in this case, in touch with the ball. And that's, that's great because you know, humans will find a way. Soccer will win out. Uh, soccer will always be there, whatever you want to call it, by the way, soccer, football, calcio. Uh, whatever it whatever it ends up being it will find a way to stay in your life and soccer people are creative people they find ways to keep it in their life and this team of 13 year olds was finding ways and it's not just the actual ball it's it's the communication it's the family that a team is it's the experiences that you have there will be teams right now that are going through this period in history that many, many years from now, when this is long gone, will reference back to this period. And not necessarily with, with fondness for having gone through it, but for a moment that, that brought them together in a completely different and unique way. And you know, I'll be interested, if I'm around, uh, I will be interested to see how it 
informs and how it impacts uh, individual players and teams and ultimately the game uh, going forward. So well done to uh, everybody out there that is doing the things and being creative to keep soccer in their lives. You know, soccer doesn't go away just because we are all in our houses. Soccer doesn't go away just because we're not playing it on the field. Soccer is something that is, that is living and breathing. It is inside of all of us. And, you know, I was reminded of that and uh, we will continue to be reminded of that as we go forward because you can't kill soccer. That's for sure. Uh, Marcy, anything before we head out? No, that's it. All right. We thank you each and every uh, week for, uh, for tuning in, for downloading, for reviewing, for sending us those Ask Alexi questions. Uh, we thank all of the people at Fox, uh, especially over there at Fox Digital, for everything that they are doing to get content out there, whether it's soccer or anything else, but to get content out there, to create content, uh, to be creative and to ramp it up. We're, you know, we're, we're trying to feed people as much as we possibly can. Hopefully we're doing it in a, uh, in a good and interesting and entertaining way, but there's a lot of people behind the scenes that uh, enable us to be able to do this on a consistent basis, uh, whether it's Alex or Louise or anybody else out there. It, uh, you know, these, these are the people that are doing the things to get you the, uh, the content out there that is keeping us, as I said, oftentimes sane, uh, but ultimately, I hope everybody is staying, as I said, sane, but also uh, everybody is staying healthy. And uh, this too shall pass. I truly believe that. All right, Mossy, uh, we will talk again next week. We will talk again to everybody next week. So goodbye. Thank you. And as always, size the deck.